0: Have you ever had one of those situations where you're in a conversation with someone and you didn't realize who they were until a little bit later and then you put two and two together and he's like, oh, that was so-and-so or something like that. You've had one of those situations. Uh, I have, those, those things can go either way. I mean, sometimes you look back and be like, well, maybe it was good that I didn't know who it was. Or it could be that you look back and say, oh, I wish I had known who it was. I I have situations like that happen every now and then, but in a kind of a different way. Uh, I'll be having a conversation with people and uh, everything seems to be fine until they ask me what I do for a living. And I tell them I'm a pastor. And then all of a sudden it's like a bomb just hit the room. And you watch their... Their mind spinning, what did I say? Was it okay, you know, and all of that. And, and it's like, had I known, things might have been different. Apparently, there's a TV show called Undercover Boss, which I've never seen, but I like the premise of it. Maybe some of you have seen it. And it's the idea of uh, this boss goes and he... Uh, apparently disguises himself as an employee in his own company or as a customer coming in and uh, they engage with him, uh, the employees engage with him not knowing that it's the boss and he gets to see what's really happening down there. And uh, that... I, I would imagine that at the end of that show, when they're watching the show, when they're realizing what just took place, that there's a whole lot of their wheels spinning. It could be a great thing. Maybe they weren't intimidated like they normally would be, and so they can just be themselves in front of the boss, and the boss gets to see the real them. On the other hand, the boss gets to see the real them. You know. And uh, so it could be that it all depends on what's going on inside of them when the boss sees what's happening. This is kind of what's taking place in our passage today. Our passage is not Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was our passage at the second week of this series. So today we're actually talking about Good Friday uh, is, is our text. And what's happening is, is that there are, there's a whole city full of people who have no idea what's happening and who it is they're dealing with. No idea at all. Five days ago at Palm Sunday, of course, there was... Uh, an abundance of palm branches and no shortage of hosannas when jesus came walking in and there was many who thought that this would be the king you know but what it is that they understood the king to be was something radically different than what in fact him becoming king actually was and what they couldn't imagine is that these five days later is that jesus is actually revealing his authority And he's taking authority and establishing the kingdom of God by headed to a cross. That wouldn't make sense to any of them. They couldn't piece that together. What they don't understand is that this isn't just a king. This isn't just another civil leader. This isn't just another religious leader. This isn't just another political leader. This isn't Abraham Lincoln coming to save the day. This isn't Martin Luther King coming to save the day. This isn't some great religious revival speaker. You know, this isn't just Jonathan Edwards or or charles finney or some revival speaker this is the king of kings and it's the lord of lords it's creator god who's establishing his authority over the world and they had no idea and so he was truly in in the deepest sense of the word the undercover boss the undercover king i mean they had no idea and what we find in situations like that is that the heart is revealed because when, the, when no one knows what's happening, no one can put on a facade and they just act how they act. And that's what happens all across these two chapters in chapter 18 and 19 of John. And we don't have time to read the entire chapters, but what we're going to do is we're going to pick them apart just a little bit and we're going to take little snippets of it and, and, and take pictures of the different interactions of people with Jesus and we're going to start with the Roman soldiers. Now the Roman soldiers we'll see at the beginning of chapter 19 halfway through our text for this morning and what happens here is you know that there's a there's kind of a war there there's a war happening between Pilate and the religious leaders. There's Pilate who's the Roman leader over Jerusalem. But then there's the indigenous native Jewish religious leaders. The the chief priests. And they're locking horns right now. Because the chief priests want desperately to get rid of Jesus. And we'll talk more about that with their interaction with Christ. And then there are those. There, there's Pilate who doesn't see any real good reason. To get rid of Jesus at this point, And we'll get to him as well. But they're locking horns. And for Pilate in order to try to. Subdue some of the bloodthirst of these high priests. He decides to have jesus flogged Now, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the film the passion of the christ But if you have you may never be able to let go of the images of the flogging of christ in uh, That film if you've read history or if you've understood anything about Flogging flogging is an absolutely brutal form of torture you know, where there are bones and pieces of bones and rocks tied to the end of whips and they scourge and it rips flesh. It's a terrible, terrible thing. It exposes nerves. It's incredibly painful. This may not have been the most painful thing that Christ went through. I mean, there's so many levels of darkness that Christ had to walk through, including a level of separation from his Father and all sorts of things. And we'll explore that, grieve that, and celebrate more what our redemption is on Friday at Tenebrae at the Tenebrae service, and we'll look at that more. But in this situation, the flogging was something that was absolutely brutal physically to endure. And there are those who were called to carry this out. It was their job. They were skilled at learning just how to torture a person with this craft, so to speak. And that that was these Roman soldiers. Now, we may or may not believe that it's okay that they did their job. They were following orders, right? And we could argue about that. But what we watch with how the Roman soldiers deal with Jesus reveals something about them. So if you will turn with me to John chapter 19, starting in the first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, "'Hail!' king of the jews and they struck him in the face how about this you'll find something in the interactions wait throughout this time and and listen throughout the scriptures that we read and you will find something that happens over and over again people cannot stop saying the word king in every one of these interactions you start so many of these interactions you you hear people say the word king do these guys actually think that jesus is the king no no Does Pilate think he's the king? No. Do the high priest think he's the king? No. No one actually thinks he's the king. But they can't stop talking about it. You know why? Because deep inside of their spirit, when God shows up in the room, they can't help but react. And the question that's on their mind is, is he king? Even though they have no good reason to actually think he is king. And here you have these Roman soldiers. And they start mocking Jesus. And they piece together what? A crown. A crown a crown of thorns, and they jam it into his head. And we won't go into what all that's about for, sake of, for lack of time. But they put that on his head, and they wrap him in, in the royal purple robe, and they begin to mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. This is what we need to know about the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldier, these Roman soldiers, they're, they're bullies. But you know what bullies are, right? Bullies are not the top of the food chain right? They're, they're not the, they don't graduate top of the class. They're not necessarily the best and the brightest, the bullies. That's not the way it works. These guys, they're not the king, you know? Caesar's the king. Pilate's the king. The chief priests are kings. They're all ones who are in charge. These soldiers, they're just soldiers, you know? That's what they are. They're soldiers, and they have been trained to do their job, but they sit under authority. And I would imagine that those soldiers have had to endure a great deal, and that they've been barked orders at them over and over again. And they've had to put up with a whole lot. But the Roman soldiers, and this is a Roman world, kind of like there's American soldiers in an American world. You know? And what happens is, is every now and then you see soldiers who, like other people, experience stress in their life. But they happen to have weapons. And they happen to have knowledge as to how to hurt people. And if things turn dark, that can turn into a bad, sadistic sort of fun. And that's what happens with these guys. They're the brawlers. They're the tough guys. And while they're under pressure from above, they decide to take out the pressure on the one who they see as below them and let it out. You see, Jesus, to them, he's just some no-name Jewish lunatic who thinks he's a king. And for their sakes, he's a punching bag. And they're going to have some fun with him. Do they know who they're dealing with? Are you kidding me? If they had any idea that this man created them, that he holds Caesar in the palm of his hand, that one day he will ride on a horse called Faithful and True and he will march into Armageddon and that every king across the course of history and every soldier, no matter how brave, will cower in fear of his wrath. Do you think that they would dare press a crown of thorns onto his head and strike him in the face and mock His kingship? Of course not. But should it matter? Should it matter whether they know that's who he is or not? Honestly, is there ever a time that it's okay to mistreat the least of these? Is there ever a time when it's okay to mock someone? Is there ever a, a place in my life when it's okay? I'm just having fun. I don't have to worry about how this affects another person. Is there ever a time in our lives when that's okay? No. And as a matter of fact, Jesus tells us, so as we've done to the least of these brothers of ours, we've done unto him. How many times in my life have I not cared about someone next to me? Have I not cared about how my lifestyle here in America affects the world around me? How many times have I not cared about the fact that I just want to go here and hang out with these people and do this thing and that might not include these over here, but oh well. How many times has that happened with us? And perhaps in the process, we have missed the fact that the King of Kings is available to us and we've mistreated him without knowing it. From the Roman soldiers, we move to Judas. And Judas is at the very beginning of our passage in chapter 18. At the beginning. I love the start of this chapter. The first phrase tells everything. When Jesus had finished praying. Jesus knew what to do. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. What is it that would possess Judas? This man who knew Jesus to betray him, what would possess him to sell him out like this? I believe that at some point Judas really did believe that Jesus was a Messiah of sorts. I believe that Judas had a great desire to see a Messiah come. But I believe the primary reason why Judas wanted to see a Messiah come was because the nation of Israel was under massive economic duress because they had to pay massive homage to their ruling government, Rome. And that he would love to see Rome overthrown so that they could begin to feel the blessing of economic thriving culture where he could begin to get a hold of some wealth and maybe gain some happiness. You see, at the core... Judas is what he is. And for three years, he walked with Jesus. And he played the game, and he did what it is that he did. But at the core of it, the heart will be revealed. And this is why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And at some point, there will come a point of decision, a place of collision, where following Jesus, jesus and submitting to him will be at a crossroads with what the smart economic thing to do is and you remember where we saw this really happen with judas it was the first message in this series we called it the preparation and this was where jesus was in bethany and they were all celebrating the fact that he had just risen lazarus from the dead and there was this big party and mary comes in and she takes her expensive perfume that was worth a year's worth of wages. And she pours it out on Christ so that the the whole room is filled with the thick scent of worship. There's a beautiful moment. And yet Judas can't handle it. And he flips out and he says, why would we waste all this money when we could give it to the poor? And John tips us off. He doesn't care about the poor. He cares about the money. We probably could have figured that out anyway. And here he reveals himself. And we said at that moment that two paths were set. There were those who were destined for the cross and those who were destined for the resurrection. Those who were destined toward separation from Christ and those who were destined toward unity with Christ. Those who would push through the cross to the resurrection and find unity with Him and those who would end their relationship with Jesus at the cross because they only saw through eyes of flesh, not through eyes of the Spirit. And Judas, his fate was clear in Bethany, because he chose money. And so when Jesus no longer looked like he was going to establish the kind of kingdom that would bring economic freedom to him, he decided to do the profitable thing. He was a corporate shark. He was the recording industry. He was, you know, the, the man, whatever. And, and he decides to sell out his Savior to get a few pennies because he was worth more to him that way. How many times have I... missed opportunities to see Christ work the way I could have seen because I held the purse strings a little too tight. How many times in my life have I missed something that God may be calling me to because I was afraid that we don't have the resources to actually go after that? How many times in my life Have I failed to embrace the full goodness of what God has for me? Because instead of paying homage to the king, I'm trying to just make the next buck or something. How many times have we seen people work the extra hour and and care about making the extra buck in order to afford this sort of lifestyle when they're missing life all around them? It's easy to look at Judas and see the absurdity of choosing money over christ but how often in very practical ways do we choose to think financially instead of choosing to think in terms of worship and in terms of faith from judas we move on and we move to the priests the chief priests i want you to look with me at 18 chapter 18 starting in verse 19 meanwhile the high priest questioned Jesus about, and his disciples about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I say. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. In this way, is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? You can turn with me to chapter 19, verse 14 and 15. It was the day of preparation of the Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. You hear what's happening here? See, this is interesting. The chief priest, this is a very, very interesting thing. The chief priest, out of all the people in this whole scene, if there was anyone who had the knowledge who could have identified Jesus as the Messiah, it's the chief priest. You see, back then, there was no printing press, right? And And people didn't have one of these things hanging around. They couldn't get up in the morning and break open their Bible and have their morning devotions the way we do. They didn't have a phone that had the Bible right on their phone that if you push a button, it reads the Bible to you. You know, they didn't have any of that. As a matter of fact, there was very little access to the scriptures at all. There was probably not even a cohesive picture of the scriptures altogether. There was a scroll here and a scroll there. And the people who had constant access to the scrolls were the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders and they had been trained deeply in the scriptures and they memorized the scriptures and they had so much knowledge about these prophecies about the messiah if there was anyone who was intellectually capable of identifying the signs and saying that's the messiah it would have been the chief priests however they're incredibly blind aren't they jesus even calls them the blind guides they're so blind and why are they blinded This is why they're blinded, because they don't actually want a Messiah, because they don't actually want a king. Do you know why? Because of all the people in the story, they're the ones who are pretty comfortable, because they have life basically the way they want it and need it. You see, all the people of, of Israel who are oppressed, they're in a tough spot. They can't make ends meet. They're in a struggle and Jesus comes and he shows up on the scene and he starts to heal them and he starts to care for them and he starts to give them a sense of empowerment and peace and joy. And that doesn't work well for the religious leaders because the religious leaders, you see, while sure, they wouldn't mind being over top of Rome, they actually have it set up pretty good because they have an agreement when it comes to leadership and they are not all that concerned about the average person underneath of them and trying to help them thrive and they're certainly not concerned about the well-being of rome they're sitting there in their spot large and in charge and they have things just the way they need them and as long as they're okay then they're not really interested in a whole lot of change and what jesus offers is one thing change I mean, you cannot accept Jesus without accepting change. That's who he is. It's what he brings to the table. When he steps onto earth, when he steps into humanity, do you think that things could ever possibly be the same again? There's no way. All he brings with him is a wave of change and those who are most comfortable in the situation aren't that interested in change. And so even though their minds are the ones that are most capable of understanding the fact that this is Messiah, The problem is, is Messiah has to be received in the heart. And their hearts aren't interested in receiving. Their hearts are cold and they're hard. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they have no idea that this is actually the Messiah. And they begin to believe that this guy is a nuisance and that he is in the way. And Caiaphas, the high priest, who's supposed to be the shepherd over all the people, what does he say? He says, it is better that one die For the sake of many, rather than many die. You know who's saying that? That's the chief priest. You know what the true chief priest said? He said, if there are 99 in the fold and there's one missing, I will leave the 99 and I will go find them. And no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for those he loves. And the true high priest, Jesus, will lay down his life and sacrifice it for the sake of many. But the political high priest of the day, he won't sacrifice his lifestyle in order to receive the one who can help the many. And so he says, don't disrupt the system. It's better that one die. And why does he want the system the way it is? Because in the system, he's doing okay. And this is what ends up happening. You see, they say to Pilate, first they get frustrated at Jesus because Jesus gives them a wise answer as they're questioning him and they strike him in the face. Why do they strike him in the face? They say, is this how you're going to talk to the high priest? He didn't even say anything wrong. The problem is, is they wanted more subordination from Jesus. They wanted him to submit to them more. They wanted him to grovel a little. They wanted him to get a little more humble. They were used to being large and in charge but Jesus isn't intimidated. As a matter of fact, Jesus is being pressed at this point and so he's stepping into his kingdom and he is beginning to reveal the fact that he is in fact the king and as he reveals it, it makes them squirm. They're very uncomfortable because it means change and they want nothing of it and so when he won't submit to them, they strike him in the face and they start to become the bullies because they're feeling pressure. And then they put the pressure on Pilate. And they say, Pilate, you got to get rid of this king, this, this one you're calling the king. And, and Pilate says this to him, And you notice they just keep using the word king. He says, do you want me to crucify your king? And what do they say? They have the audacity to say, we have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? Now you're going to say Caesar's your king? Are you kidding me? And there's only one reason why they say Caesar's the king. Because if Caesar stays king, instead of Jesus becoming king, the system stays the same and they still become their own kings and can still have their own lifestyles. And everything stays the same. So they'll play the political game. Is Caesar actually their king? No way. They don't give one hoot about Caesar. They're not submitting to Caesar. They just want to play ball politically in order to keep things the way they are. See, that's politics. That's not, this is human control. This is about lies and deceit. This is about when we try to get things done by human power. But human power is not power that's just given to humans. Human power is based on the power of lies and deception, which belongs to the prince of darkness of this world because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And Jesus names this in John 8 when he looks at these religious leaders and he says, I know who you belong to, your father Satan. You see, this is the deal. These guys want to control and they don't care about who's under them and they claim that they have no king but Caesar when in reality they do have a king and it's not Caesar. It's the dark one. It's Satan, the prince of darkness. That's who it is. It's a sad, sad thing. But then I have to ask myself, how many times have I been comfortable? How many times has Jesus called me to something that's outside of my comfort zone? How many times have I read the scriptures and realized what it is he's calling me to would disrupt my lifestyle? And I hear the demands of Jesus and I dismiss them and I say, they can't, it can't possibly be what he means there. It must be metaphorical. It must be that it means something else. It must be just hyperbole he's using in order to get me to feel a different way. It couldn't possibly be that he wants me to live this sort of lifestyle. It couldn't possibly be that he would want me to step out in this way or to do this and we miss The King of Kings, and we miss the Lord of Lords, and we miss the establishment of the Kingdom of God in our lives in that moment because we're comfortable. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I've been on the team and I've been doing pretty good. You know, it could be a sports team, it could be music, uh, playing music, it could be at work, you're thriving, it could be in your class, you're top of the class, and then someone comes into the picture and they're a little better than you are. You ever been in that situation? You thought you were doing okay at something and then someone comes in and they're a little better? How's that make you feel? That's a little bit of a shocker. I remember I worked for a, a public works department, a, a borough not too far from here. I won't name which one. And uh, while I was there, I went to work and I remember showing up and I was a college kid who uh, you know, liked to be in shape and there was a lot of work to be done and so I put myself to work and I worked hard and I remember those guys pointing a finger in my face and they said, you better slow down, young man, or else you're gonna have some trouble coming because they didn't want the bar to be raised. Because they didn't want to work. And they didn't want me to work. But there's been other situations where I've been on the team, and I thought I was doing really good. You know, I was getting the all-star, I was doing that, And then someone else comes on the team, and they're far more talented than I am. And guess what happens? It's hard for me to take some advice from them here and there. Because my humility's struggling a little bit, you know? And because I don't want them to raise the bar, it was good the way it was. How many times do we miss what Christ has for us because we're unwilling to allow ourselves to change and we're unwilling to be pressed beyond what's been comfortable in our lives. Then we move on to Pilate. Chapter 18:33. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, "Of course, are you king of the Jews?" I love Jesus' response. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? You see what Jesus is doing, don't you? He's probing his heart. He's probing Pilate's heart. Pilate says, am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your, own, it was your, own, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, hear that word, now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And if you flip over to 19, starting in verse 7, the Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And then it continues on. Pilate heard this. He brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat. If you skip down to verse 16, it says, Finally, Pilate handed, them over to him, to be cru- handed him over to them to be crucified. What's taking place here? I mean, Pilate is a reasonable man to one degree, uh, you know, and he's trying to understand the situation, and he certainly doesn't want to cave to the pressure of the religious leaders. He's not interested in having them push him around. He has the pressure from Rome. He's in this situation, but he's also learning. And what you hear in this thing is really interesting, and I want you to follow this. We live by faith, not by sight. Jesus is establishing a kingdom that's not an earthly kingdom, that's a spiritual kingdom. And this interaction with Pilate reveals it where he continues to say, my kingdom is not of this world. I came to this world to reveal the truth. And you watch the wheels spinning in Pilate. You remember from the other, from the other passages, the other gospels, his wife came to him and told him, hey, don't mess around with this Jesus guy. I had a dream about him. Leave him alone. So he already knows there's something weird going on. Why would his wife have this dream about it? He senses there's something going on. It's not an odd thought for a Roman ruler to believe that there could be a human who's divine. I mean, the pantheon of the Greek gods, it was all about this idea. So you can see Pilate's wheels spinning. And when they told him that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, you can see the pressure goes way up, not only because the stakes are higher, because he's dealing with the Jewish religion, but also, I believe, because he's actually beginning to question, who is this guy? And who is this standing in front of me? And he asks him, point blank, where do you come from? To which Jesus doesn't say a word. Oh, man. Jesus just, oh, he's got an iron will. If Jesus had said anything wrong in this moment, you know what would have happened? The whole process would have stopped and he wouldn't have been crucified. That's what would have happened. But Jesus keeps his mouth shut like a lamb led to the slaughter. Because this man would have recognized his authority if Jesus had exerted it at all. But Jesus chooses not to. And then when this man tries to exert authority with Jesus to get him to talk, Jesus basically says this, You wouldn't have power unless I gave it to you. And right here in front of him, in the moment, he is giving him the power. He's handing the power to him in this moment by not saying a thing. Jesus could take control of the situation with one word and he could stop it, not by doing anything supernatural, just by being reasonable and rational. He could help pile it out and he could stop the whole situation, but he doesn't. And he says, you would have no power if it wasn't given to you from above. I'm not of this world. I'm from another world. I testify to you. I'm giving you power right now. And the one who handed you over to me, the chief priests, they're the ones who Should have known who I am, and they're guilty of the worst sin. Does that get Pilate off the hook? Not a bit. Not a bit. Why not? Because in his heart, he knew. He knew in his heart, and he didn't listen to it. Because as soon as they said anyone who believes that they say they're a king, they're not a friend of Caesar. The pressure mounted. And the stakes were higher. And he had a question between his mind and his heart. And his heart said, fear this man because there's something legitimate about what he's saying. And his mind said, fear Caesar. And he had to choose which king he would serve in this moment. And he chose very clearly. Caesar still has a little pizza place named after him and a salad dressing. But Jesus changed the earth forever. You know, he didn't choose that wisely. It wasn't that smart of a decision. But how many times in my life, when I look back, do I have to stop and realize, man, I was afraid of the wrong thing. You know? I was afraid of what people would think. I was afraid we wouldn't make ends meet. I was afraid. And and so many times, man, it's easy to relegate my lack of responsibility to the context in which I find myself. You know, I was in this marriage, it was so tough. And if you had any idea how tough it was or the situation at work, it's just, it's oppressive and they expect things that aren't appropriate, but there's no way to really stand up against it. I mean, have you seen what the, the media and the government expect of us as Christians? You can't do this or you can't do that or you play into the stereotype, yada, yada, yada. There's all the situations, there's all the pressure. We all face it. We either step up and we submit to the king or we don't. It's that simple. And while it was a complicated situation for Pilate, it's really not that complicated. It's not that complicated for us either. And then we turn to what I believe is potentially the most heartbreaking picture of all of those who interacted with Jesus. Chapter 18, starting in verse 7, they're in the garden. Again, Jesus asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happens to the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? This is a historic problem with Peter. <clears throat> This isn't something that's just happening this night. This is what Peter struggles with. Does Peter know who Jesus is? You better believe he does. He's the first one to admit it. You remember up there in Caesarea Philippi when they're sitting up there and and they're sitting in this temple to all the gods of the world and he's standing in front of it and Jesus says, who is it that people say I am? Some say a prophet, some say this, some say that. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I almost see Jesus like, well done, Peter. This was not revealed to you by men. This was revealed to you by God. And your name will be Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And in this moment, what he realizes is, is that Peter has submitted this head that's going crazy to a heart that knows God. And he learns information from God that he couldn't have just figured out on his own. The spirit is communicating to him and he learned from God. And therefore, he is at a place where he's truly receiving Jesus for who he is. And then Jesus basically says, all right, now that you got that, I want to tell you how it's going to work. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. They're going to put me on a cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. To which Peter, of course, grabs him by the shoulder and pulls him aside. He says, Jesus, man, you're messing up everyone's morale here. We just realized that you're the king. And now you're trying to tell us that you're going to die. We're not going to let you die. Now that we know you're the king, we're going to keep you from dying. To which Jesus turns around and responds, get behind me, Satan. See, this is the struggle that Peter has over and over again, is that in his heart, he yearns for Jesus, and he loves Jesus, and Jesus is the best thing that ever happened, and he's a follower who so desperately wants to follow him and serve him. And yet Peter has this one major problem, and that's that when the context isn't going down the way he thinks it should go down. He cannot release control and let Jesus be in charge. He's actually willing to tell Jesus he's wrong and he's going to take charge. And you see it over and over again. You see it this night when Jesus tries to wash his feet and he says no. And then Jesus said he has to wash his feet. So he says, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus, I, I, like, are you kidding me? Just let me do this, Peter. You know. And then they go to the garden And well, even before that, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And you know what Peter should have said? He should have said, I'm sorry. That's what he should have said. But instead, he says, there's no way it's going to happen. He wouldn't listen. And then they get to the garden, and Jesus tells him to stay up and pray, and he can't stay up and pray. And can you imagine how frustrated Peter is, the man who wants to be on the winning team? Of course, Jesus is the lead scorer. I'm not trying to be the lead scorer, but I want to be on the winning team. And what he can't admit is that he's a loser and that he needs Jesus, and there's only one who wins. And he won't even let Jesus lose when Jesus wants to lose because Jesus is trying to lose a battle so he can win the war, but Peter won't let him because Peter is never, ever willing to lose. I got to admit, sometimes one of the toughest things in, in my life is just getting humble enough just getting broken enough before him, you know? Just saying, we can't do this. We can't do this. I can't, I can't do this, you know? I, I'm like the rest of the disciples, Jesus. I'm like, I'm like the rest of the people around me. I'm even in some ways like the chief priests and like Judas. I can't hang, you know? And I need you. But Peter couldn't do it. Sometimes it's the people who want the most to do the right thing, fail the most miserably because they can't admit that they struggle and that they need someone else we find ourselves then at the foot of the cross and at the foot of the cross all we see is a few people 19 verse 25 near the cross of jesus stood his mother his mother's sister mary the wife of clopas and mary magdalene And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So here we have the faithful ones, right? The ones who are still at the cross. John and the Marys. But there's a problem. By faithful, I don't necessarily mean that they're full of faith. I just mean that they're still there. See, the problem is, is it's really hard when you're looking at Jesus on a cross to believe that he could still be a king. I mean, he said that he was going to die and he was going to rise again, but do you think that could actually stick when someone's watching her son hanging on a cross? You know, Do you think that can actually stick when someone's watching their best friend being tortured and manhandled the way he's being manhandled? How could it be that he's really still the king? I don't know about you, but there's been plenty of situations in my life where I know Jesus is all I got, you know? He's it. There's nothing else that's worth it. And yet somehow, he still doesn't seem big enough for the circumstances I'm facing. You know? And I just have a hard time trusting him. And I have a hard time rejoicing and submitting in my circumstances and feeling like it's going to be okay. I have a struggle. And I know I don't, look, I'm not looking for the money like Judas. You know, I'm not looking to beat someone down and have fun like the soldiers. I'm not, I'm not looking even to maintain my sense of comfortability like the priests. I'm certainly not just afraid to step out and say it. I, or here I am, you know, I am what I am. It's Jesus. And, and you know, I know I need the help. I'm not just like Peter in this moment where I'm too big for my bridge. I know all that. But Jesus, seriously, can you be king over this situation? Really? But he was the king. And in this moment, right here, right now, he is winning the hearts of his people. And he is establishing his throne on a Roman cross. And in this moment, he is taking all power and all authority and bringing it into submission. And he is washing the hearts of his people. And he is saving their souls. And he's a king of all kings and a lord of all lords. In this moment, in a few seconds, he's going to say this. It is finished. And believe me in that moment, it is finished. Here's the problem though. The problem is that when Jesus comes to us, he's so nice, he's so good. He comes to us gentle as a dove and he comes to us like a lamb. He comes to us as a wonderful counselor and as a loyal friend. Why is that a bad thing? The reason it's a bad thing is because we grow to trust Jesus and think that we're trusting Jesus, but see, something happens at the end of it all. At some point, we cannot believe that Jesus is just our advisor, that Jesus is just the one who will get us the money, that Jesus is the one who will bring us the comfortable lifestyle, and we grow to use Jesus as a lucky charm or something like that. But at the end of the day, it will be revealed at some point He cannot be my co pilot, He can only be be my king. And you, if you follow a king... He's not a charm and he can't be in your back pocket. The king is in charge. And if I have a king, then I obey the king. And if I have a king, I submit to the king. And if I have a king, I worship the king. And if I have a king, then I put my trust in the king. And if I think he's anything other than that, then I'm in for a rude awakening someday when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, at some point, I have to realize that i got to obey this man and that it's not just easy. And obedience doesn't start until I disagree with him. Once I disagree with him, I can start to obey him. When I, when I already agree, that's just agreement. That doesn't reveal obedience. When, when I'm in circumstances that seem okay to me, that's not submission to my circumstances. That's me enjoying my life. When the situation gets difficult, that's when submission starts. Worship of God That doesn't happen when I'm enjoying all these other things. It happens when I stare at all the other pleasures of the world and I say, I'd rather have you. That's when worship starts. It's not when the band strikes up and all the music is there and it feels really good to worship God. No, worship starts all throughout the week when I'm in situations where I choose to hail him as king when it'd be a whole lot more comfortable not to. And then when I show up on Sunday morning, I'm already worshiping and I'm practiced up. Can you imagine what worship services would be like if we were always in a state of worship and by the time we got here, we were just pouring it out together? It'd break loose up in here, you know? And faith, Faith doesn't happen until the circumstances are too overwhelming and it looks like there's no way to move forward. And that's when faith begins, when I still submit to him and I still trust him. It ends, and I won't read it, it ends with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these poor guys. They love Jesus and he calls them disciples, but it says they're too afraid to be public about it. How could they still be disciples even though they failed? <laughs> Really same way peter was a disciple even though judas even though he failed What was the difference between peter and judas? What's the difference between these religious leaders and the other ones? The difference is that they admit it They're failures and they need help the difference is the body broken and the blood shed That they depend on it. I depend on it I know many of you do too Which is why we show up at love feast tonight and we break bread and we drink the cup and we say hey I'm, no super disciple I'm just a man in need at the foot of the cross. Let's pray.